Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 25th day of March in the year 2021, and I'm doing this podcast because I have nothing better to do. Now, today, we're going to continue on filling in the background of our long arc of discussion of the aging process in humans and the contribution of the immune system and epigenetics that foster in, in later life, a constellation of diseases which are associated with failures in the immune response that ultimately lead to high levels of morbidity and then based on factors that are both genetic and epigenetic as well, of course, pathophysiological, the um, aging process comes to a close and mortality results. So I'm trying to put together this series of lectures so that we have a good idea of what the scientific literature describes as this process. I don't spend much time on any of the earlier years or any of the potential um, ramifications of dealing with xenobiotics or the kinds of behaviors that people might get themselves involved in that could shorten their lifespan, such as cigarette smoking, uh, alcohol consumption, drug use, and, or any of those kinds of uh, external parameters. Um, those could be a topic for another set of lectures. But right now, I'm just talking about what happens to the body uh, because of genetic and epigenetic interactions in association with the immune system. Okay. So this background lecture today is going to be about very basic lipid absorption. I want to be able to bring this forward because there are elements of lipoprotein metabolism that we're going to need to introduce so that we can get a better handle on dyslipidemia and how that's related to problems with lipoprotein circulation. So that's the long part of the introduction, and now we go. So <clears throat> what happens to lipids when we consume them uh, in the diet? Well, first of all, they go directly into the bloodstream. Now, glycerol and short-chain and even medium-chain fatty acids are somewhat water-soluble. Most lipids, however, are trafficking the lymphatic system and when lipids are moving in circulation, they occur as micelles. Usually that's how the initial phase of digestion or absorption occurs. Micelles diffuse into intestinal cells and you get a reassembly of triacylglycerol after the initial lipase breakdown of the fatty acid esters from the glycerol backbone. Triacylglycerol is the most common dietary lipid. Now, those reformed triacylglycerol molecules are packed with proteins, and that is the first phase of lipoprotein metabolism. Now, those lipoproteins are called chylomicrons, and their first movement through circulation bypasses the liver. So, there are four main types of lipoproteins. There's a low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, and it transports hepatic triacylglycerol and cholesterol, also some phospholipid. Liver regulation is via the expression of the 
genes at the transcription translation level that end up becoming the apolipoprotein associated with the lipoprotein fraction. Proteins that are also synthesized in the liver that play a role in lipoprotein trafficking are the receptors. Another lipoprotein of significance is the HDL, or high-density lipoprotein. What its function is, is to remove cholesterol from cells in what's called retrograde transport. So it carries cholesterol to the liver for recycling. HDL has been associated with some anti-inflammatory properties because of some of the enzymatic activity associated with the HDL fraction. We'll get into that later. Now, the ones I started with were the chylomicrons. These are the largest, and they are the least dense, which means they have the highest load of lipid-to-protein ratio. Chylomicrons transport dietary-derived lipids, as I said, and once a pass of the chylomicrons through circulation occurs, the liver removes chylomicron remnants from the blood. And we'll get into some detail about that directly. Let me just continue on with the subclassifications of lipoproteins. The next I want to talk about very low-density lipoprotein, or VLDL. That, of course, is made directly in the liver. And once a proportion of lipid becomes in the right ratio to protein, that causes that VLDL to move and shift towards moving away and out of the liver. Okay. So <clears throat> let's go back to digestion for a second. The intestinal mucosal cell, you have protein breakdown to amino acids because of proteases and peptidases. And those amino acids are going to be used to recharge transfer RNA so that the, the messenger RNA that is being synthesized in the intestinal mucosal cell can be translated to polypeptide. Now, important polypeptides in the intestinal mucosal cell include the apolipoprotein B48. So that's one component of this initial phase of digestion. The next is phospholipids that are either directly in the diet or that are moving along in previously digested lipids as phospholipids. You also, of course, have fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin E and vitamin D, which will be introduced into the developing chylomicron lipoprotein structure. Now, talking about triacylglycerol. Triacylglycerol is broken down first by lipases that will remove the one and three position of the fatty acids, leaving a two monoacylglycerol. That 2-MG will then be converted through two reactions, one acyl-CoA monoacylglycerol acyltransferase, the second acyl-CoA diacylglycerol transferase to synthesize, resynthesize triacylglycerol, which will also be occluded into the developing chylomicron, again, all in the intestinal mucosal cell. Long-chain fatty acids um, will also react with coenzyme A and ATP to make fatty acyl-CoAs. Those are the fatty acyl-CoAs, which will be used to resynthesize the triacylglycerol via those two acyl transferase reactions. 
Cholesterol will also pick up a fatty acid in the intestinal mucosa and then make a cholesterol ester of a fatty acid and cholesterol. So the chylomicron is going to have CE, cholesterol ester, reformed TAG, triacylglycerol, the initial apolipoprotein, B48, and then a host of medium chain and long chain phospholipids. Now, that chylomicron then enters the lymphatic system, okay? So once the chylomicron leaves, it reacts in the lymphatic system with HDL. So the hydroxylipoprotein has associated with it ApoA1, ApoC2, and ApoE. So three apolipoproteins in the HDL fraction. Now, two of those proteins are going to be loaded on to the developing chylomicron now in the lymphatic system. So the only lipoprotein left with the HDL fraction after this transport of the two proteins will be ApoA1. That means that ApoE and ApoC2 will both be added to the chylomicron. The next reaction then is a lipoprotein lipase. Now, that will generate a chylomicron remnant, and that's the remnant that's reabsorbed now into the hepatocyte. So the chylomicron remnant then will be recycled once it moves through its receptor, and it'll end up in endosomal fractions and pick up lysis. The endosomal fraction will then uh, react with or move into a transport mechanism process with lysosomes making endosomal lysosomal fractions. Now, the pH of that endolysosomal fraction is going to be low because lysosomes have a low pH down to about five. You still have LDL in there, LDL that has been recycled and moved through its LDL receptor, and then the chylomicron remnant. So you've got an endolysosome with LDL and chylomicron remnant at pH 5. What will happen is a digestion. You'll make amino acids, free fatty acid, free cholesterol, and glycerol. The this is all happening in the past. The glycerol then will be used to resynthesize triacylglycerol in the hepatocyte. And one of the sources of the carbon for that is glucose. Glucose running through glycolysis to um, pyruvate, and then pyruvate entering the TCA cycle and citrate leaving the mitochondria, all happening in the hepatocyte, used in fatty acid synthesis. So the carbon from glucose gets converted to fatty acid. That fatty acid and the glycerol left over after the digestion of the endolysosome is used to resynthesize triacylglycerol now in the hepatocyte. Now, that glycerol comes from the breakdown of the chylomicron to the chylomicron remnant in association with that enzyme that's in the lymphatic system, as I told you, lipoprotein lipase. Now you've got <clears throat> phospholipids, ApoB, ApoE, ApoC2, and ApoA1. ApoC2, ApoE, and ApoA1 will be used to synthesize HDL in the hepatocyte because that's where hydroxylipoprotein is synthesized from the hepatocyte. But also, you'll take ApoB100, 
triacylglycerol and phospholipids and form the very low glycerol protein in the hepatocyte, which will leave the hepatocyte. Now, the VLDL that's now in the lymphatic system will react with the HDL fraction also now in the lymphatic system. And the VLDL will also pick up the APOE and the APOC2. So the VLDL now in circulation will have APOE, APOC2, triacylglycerol, phospholipid, and also some cholesterol esters. The VLDL we converted to an intermediate density lipoprotein, or IDL, via lipoprotein lipase again, and that'll reform glycerol and fatty acid. The IDL, also now reacting again with lipoprotein lipase, will make the LDL fraction because you're starting to remove more fatty acid. The LDL can make it to the periphery or any non-hepatic cell, go into the LDL receptor, and the LDL, once inside the peripheral non-hepatic cell, can be digested to amino acids, cholesterol, fatty acid, and glycerol for bioenergetics and membrane synthesis. The LDL can also bind to a receptor on macrophages, and that LDL can also be converted to amino acids, cholesterol, fatty acid, and glycerol. And this actually is a component of foam cell production in the prodromal stages of atherosclerosis, which we can talk about later. Now, some of the fatty acids that came up at lipoprotein lipase, lipase, now again in circulation, will enter the muscle cell through a muscle cell CD36 receptor-mediated uptake, be converted to acetyl, and ac first to acyl-CoA, and then broken down via beta-oxidation to acetyl-CoA, and then could be completely combusted because it's going to be in a lipid droplet form within the muscle cell, could be completely combusted through the TCA cycle, and ultimately mitochondrial base, electron transport chain, and oxidative phosphorylation. And that carbon will be lost as carbon dioxide, and, and the electrons will all drive into oxygen to synthesize water. That's part of the electron transport chain. In the adipocyte, fatty acids and glycerol uh, will, will also re be used to reform triacylglycerol. So the adipocyte, you're going to be able to take up glucose, which we've talked many times about. Glucose is going to go through glycolysis, but only to the level of glycerol-3-phosphate. The glycerol will then react with the fatty acid to synthesize de novo triacylglycerol, which will be stored in the adipocyte as visceral depot fat. Okay, so this is that's a rundown of plasma lipoprotein metabolism, starting, of course, in the lymphatic system, and then finally being drained into general circulation. So the HDL traffics apolipoproteins, as you can tell from that discussion. And among, the lip, uh, among all the other lipoproteins that are out there in circulation, HDL, one of its major functions is to traffic apolipoproteins to all the other lipoproteins, the ones I just mentioned to you, VLDL, IDL, LDL, right? And so that's an important, important aspect of HDL. So cholesterol ester is also transferred to the HDL. And this is catalyzed by a reaction of an enzyme associated with the HDL fraction known as cholesterol ester transfer protein, or CTEP. And that cholesterol ester that's loaded onto HDL because the liver will take it up, 
will be trafficked ultimately to the liver for the elimination. That's the retrograde cholesterol transport to the liver um, that is facilitated by the HDL fraction. Now you know how that works. So more detail here. <clears throat> you've got peripheral tissue and you've got a transport protein in the peripheral tissue which is called the ABCA1. It's an ABC transporter, which means it's an ADP-dependent, ATP-dependent transporter. Now, what the ABCA1 and peripheral tissue membranes will do is traffic free cholesterol and phospholipid out of the cell, where it can react with ApoA1, which is synthesized in the liver. That will allow for the synthesis of a pre-beta HDL, which is a, another form of the nascent HDL, which is going to have primarily free cholesterol, but also some phospholipid. Now, that pre-beta HDL will react with the LCAT enzyme. And the LCAT enzyme is really important. It's a part of the HDL fraction. Uh, it's also some of that protein is found in free circulation. And that enzyme, LCAT, is the lecithin cholesterol acyl transfer. Now, lecithin, which is a difficult word to say, is also another name for phosphatidylcholine. So the LCAT enzyme will take PC or phosphatidylcholine, make lysopc, remember one fatty acid, right? And that's where, where you'll get net native cholesterol ester synthesis directly on the HDL floating structure. Now you have a form of HDL called HDL3, which is carrying cholesterol ester. Now, tissues that generate more free cholesterol will go through the LCAT reaction, making more cholesterol ester because of the reaction of the LCAT enzyme, enhancing or enriching in cholesterol ester synthesis and trafficking on HDL. The more cholesterol ester you put on HDL, now you convert HDL3 to HDL2. Okay? Now that reaction is going to be facilitated also by converting VLDL, which is the very low density lipoprotein, to the intermediate density lipoprotein because of the activities of lipoprotein lipase and the cholesterol transport protein and the phospholipid transport protein. So CETP and PLTP will add phospholipid now to the HDL fraction and also more cholesterol ester. The VLDL will be converted to IDL, the IDL ultimately to the LDL with one more round of lipoprotein lipase, which will generate fatty acid, which again can dock in either adipose cells or in muscle cells. Now you have an HDL fraction, and you will have a hormone-sensitive lipase, which will react with the lipids on the HDL lipoprotein fraction. Remember, that has a lot of cholesterol ester. And you'll get free fatty acid, and you'll also regenerate ApoA1, which can then be used to resynthesize the pre-beta HDL, which is an HDL fraction back from starting from the liver. Now there is a transporter called the SRB1, which will transport from the HDL 
the cholesterol ester into the liver, and that's where it will be stored. The free fatty acid that comes off from the homosensitive lipase from the HDL fraction, that fatty acid will enter the liver and can either go through some beta oxidation or be used, ultimately, the free fatty acid used to synthesize acyl-CoAs, and those acyl-CoAs can then be used to resynthesize triacyclosterol in the liver. So that finishes that cycle with the spotlight on the HDL fraction. See, that's what I just did for you there. Now, that's a brief overview, but it's a good overview because you, you know, there's a lot more detail, obviously, that you're going to encounter when we talk about lipoprotein trafficking. But at this point, it's, it's a good place to move into another element of lipid fractionation in the body that's almost always overlooked in biochemistry courses and uh, almost absent too in most lip, uh, biochemistry books. This has to do with a structure which is a lipid vesicle called the caveole. That's C-A-V-E-O-L-A-E. L-A-E means plural. Right? So it'd be the caveola, and then a lot of caveola would be the caveole. It's Latin. So fat cells have small lipid vesicles called these caveolae. It's where they were first described. And that's near the surface of the fat cell. They abundantly express a protein called caveolin-1 or CAV-1. That ends up being a major structural protein. And three members of the family of that cave one um, generate this peripheral caviole associated membrane protein complex. Okay. And ultimately, that is going to contain these proteins called cavins. Right. So you have cave one with cavins with this structure that's on the surface of the adipocyte. So the structure and the presence of this caveoli in adipocytes suggests they function to take up and store the fatty acids in circulation. And they're going to store it, of course, as triacyglycerol, and that's where you get visceral fat accumulation, depot fat, in the human body. Of course, that's going to be occurring in uh, after feeding. So normal feeding is going to include some glucose, some lipid, and of course, some protein. All of that carbon can ultimately can be can be converted to fatty acid and thence triacyglycerol and stored in depot fat. Of course, with some of it staying in the liver, some being trafficked to the skeletal muscle cells, but a lot of it's going to be stored in depot fat. Ultimately, then the triacyglycerol is going to be hydrolyzed, right? when called upon to from, from hormone-sensitive lipase activity to release some of the storage uh, fatty acid that was once found in triacyglycerol. And that occurs in response to long fasting or starvation. It can also occur in very vigorous exercise after long periods of time of fasting. So the trafficking of high concentrations of fatty acids in and out of those fat cells can pose a potential toxicity problem because the fatty acids themselves act as detergents, which means they can cause membrane disruption. Particularly, they can disrupt the adipocyte plasma membrane. So these caviole found first on the adipocytes are actually 
resistant to that fatty acid. Now remember the fatty acid is an amphipathic molecule, has a carboxylic acid, and has a long aliphatic chain. That's a description of detergent. So caviole are detergent-resistant membrane domains on the adipocyte surface that can function to buffer the effects of free fatty acid upon hormone-sensitive lipase mobilization of fatty acids out of the adipocyte during fasting, starvation, and acute exercise, and also during stress. So the caviolins, those proteins, modulate the rate of the transmembrane fatty acid flux. So that's why now hopefully you understand why I'm bringing them up when I'm talking about lipoproteins. They're part of the entire lipid fraction that's in circulation because they're part of the mechanism of getting fatty acids into circulation upon fasting, starvation, or acute or prolonged exercise or stress of the system. Okay? So... KVLA are found in adipocytes, but later on they were discovered on endothelial cells, muscle cells, and in fact, all three of those cells, adipocytes, endothelial, and muscle cells, you find KVLA expressed and localized in high density. The KVLA, of course, are membrane indentations that greatly enhance not only that transport mechanism, but they enhance the surface area of the plasma membrane of each of those cell types, okay? That's really an important thing to understand. <clears throat> Unlike classical clathrin-coated pits that are found in membranes and that serve as dynamic structures, and they form in plasma membranes and they concentrate usually receptor ligand complexes and they mediate the efficient endocytosis of multiple macromolecules. The KVOLI are different in that they generate a variable um, mechanism to carry out extracellular to intracellular transport and back again but they may occupy a major function on the cell surface that ends up being more than 50% in some tissues. And a good place to look is a dipocyte, but another one is a skeletal muscle. But they're rare otherwise. So for example, in the liver, you don't really see any KVOI. Uh, and they're even completely absent, as in, for example, kidney proximal tubules, you see no KVOI. Now, another thing about them, Whereas clathrin-coated pits form single pits within the membrane with a rapid progression from a flat clathrin lattice, that's the protein that's generating a flat lattice structure, to an increasingly invaginated structure that eventually buds into the cell. That's what happens with clathrin-coated pits. The KVOLI show a very constant shape with a consistent curvature and a defined neck region of this mechanistic structure in the membrane. Also, KVOLI form complex higher order structures because of the lipid and protein interactions. So the core structural components required for the formation of KVOLI include KVOLIN-1, CAV-1, CAV-3, and CAVIN-1, and a Paxin syndapin protein complex, 
and a receptor tyrosine kinase like orphan receptor 1 or ROR1. Usually it's ROR alpha 1. That acts as a transmembrane receptor tyrosine kinase, and it looks like it may be required for the caveola formation in the initial process of forming the caveola on the membrane surface. You also have an EPS, 15 homology domain, or EHD domain, and these proteins can come in different isoforms. So you have EHD proteins 1, 2, and 4 that are also found in the caveola, and they seem to play a very important role in the stability of that macromolecular structure. Okay. So now you're getting an idea of the tremendous complexity we're talking about just from this caveolar structure. Um, I think I'm going to stop here. I'm almost out of time. I'll have about a minute left. So we went through the very basic core lipoprotein trafficking in the human system from digestion through the periphery and back again to the hepatic system. I, I, then I introduced to you the caveolae and started to explain to you how they're functioning at the adipocyte, the endothelial cells, and then the skeletal muscle system to allow for trafficking of fatty acids, which will be used as biofuel or storage in those systems, depending on the ones I just described. So next time, we're going to continue on discussing KVLA, and we're going to be weaving this back in to lipid transport and then dyslipidemia, which is critical to understanding the role dyslipidemia plays in the aging process, particularly the obese aging process, leading to morbidity, okay? So, Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios saying bye for now.